You're listening to the Business for Good podcast, the show where you'll hear inspirational stories about companies making money by solving some of the world's most pressing problems. I'm your host, Paul Shapiro, and I'm glad you've joined us. You are listening to episode number 106 of the Business for Good podcast, and rest assured, it is a cool one. I hope the beginning of 2023 is going well for you so far. This episode is coming out on February 1st, 2023, and I am happy to inform you that shortly after it releases, I am getting on a plane to go on my honeymoon. Now, if you're wondering, Tony and I got married four years ago but she was going on a book tour right after the big day, so we planned a honeymoon for one year later. Well, a global pandemic put those plans on ice, so we delayed for another year and still a pandemic, so we kept delaying until now. So as you are listening to this, we are finally making it happen. Hopefully, it will be worth the wait. Stay tuned. Now, speaking of things that will hopefully be worth the wait and for which many of us have been staying tuned for quite some time, this episode, we are going to be talking about cultivated meat. That's right. Real animal proteins grown via animal cell culture rather than via animal slaughter. When I published the book Clean Meat five years ago, the companies in the book were all optimistic that their products would be on the market within just a few short years. In some cases, like Perfect Day, who we featured in episode 21 of this show, they are now certainly in widespread distribution. But for the most part, the world of cultivating animal cells for human food has remained notably pre-revenue and therefore pre-impact. Is there a way to hasten this technology's arrival onto the market? Matrix FT thinks so, and we've got their CEO, Taryn Wolf, to talk all about it. You've heard of the company seeking to build new brands of animal-free meat, but you hear a lot less about the B2B companies working behind the scenes to give those pioneers the tools they need to succeed. One such company, Matrix FT, recently debuted what it is calling Ohio's first cultivated chicken nugget, featuring chicken cells grown on the scaffolds and microcarriers that Matrix FT produces. Via a technology called electro-spinning, Matrix FT is creating edible, animal-free, cost-effective ingredients that cultivated meat companies can use in their media to more effectively grow their meat. And now, the company is starting to work with plant-based meat companies to improve texture as well. Recently, Matrix FT's founder and CEO, Eric Jankowski, stepped down from his role, and their executive, Taryn Wolf, assumed the helm of the company. In this interview, I talk with Taryn about what circumstances in her life led her to be running an ultra-protein food tech company, what she views as the biggest hurdles in the space, and what she thinks it's going to take in order for cultivated meat to reach your plate, and why it's taken so long. So enjoy listening to Taryn's story while Tony and I enjoy our honeymoon. Oh, and by the way, there is an updated edition of Clean Meat coming out in paperback that includes numerous updates. So for that, stay tuned as well. For now, enjoy this episode. Taryn, welcome to the Business for Good podcast. Hi, Paul. Thank you. It's great to be here. Hey, it's really nice to be talking with you as well. First of all, congratulations on becoming the new CEO of Matrix FT. That's exciting. Thanks. Thanks. No, I'm really excited too. Awesome. I can't wait to talk all about it, but let me just get straight to the point here because, you know, when this show began, when this podcast began, Back in 2018, I had just published a book called Clean Meat. And there were probably like less than 10 companies working in the like cultivated meat space, or what would now be called the cultivated meat space. Now there's over 150. And you were one of them. So tell us, why does the world need another 
Cultivating Meat Company? What are you all doing that's different that is useful for everybody else? That's a really good question. I think I should probably start by saying we don't make cultivated meat, nor do we ever intend to make cultivated meat. Okay. Um, and I, two things about that might be, there might be two misleading things out in the ether there that might make people think that we make meat. The first one is that before we rebranded in early 2022, the name of the company was Matrix Meats. So that's a little confusing. <laughs> yeah, yeah fair, fair enough. Okay. <laughs> FT, what does FT even stand for? I, I know. For food technologies. Food technologies. Okay. Not football, yeah. not football team, but just matrix nope. food technologies. Yeah. Okay. Got it. <laughs> I would not be the CEO of a company that had anything to do with football. So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which apparently is a very embarrassing thing when you live in Columbus, Ohio, because <laughs> everybody here loves OSU. I might have just shot myself in the foot by admitting that I don't know anything about football. But <laughs> so, Matrix, before we rebranded in early 2022, was Matrix Meats. And obviously, that's a pretty serious misnomer. So, we always started these conversations saying, hey, we're called Matrix Meats, but we actually don't make meats. We make the enabling technology that allows to, for the production and then also scale of cultivated meat. And the other thing is recently we published some images in a press release, which was picked up by a lot of different um, media outlets in our space around the chicken nugget that we made on our own microcarriers in our lab. I, um, I saw this. The photos look pretty good. I saw it touted as Ohio's first cultivated chicken. So that was pretty cool that we're now getting into the first in each state. But it's awesome that it's not coming from Silicon Valley or somewhere in the Bay Area, but rather it's coming from the heartland in Ohio. I know that you all don't intend to be selling these chicken nuggets, but tell us what is this uh, all about? Mm -hmm. The first chicken nugget mm -hmm. cultivated in Ohio. Yeah, sure. I mean, the chicken nugget really goes back to what our core technology is, and that's microcarriers and scaffolds for the alternative protein industry. And so what we make is a product that mimics an extracellular matrix. So in nature, cells need, vertebrate cells need an extracellular matrix to grow on, right? They need something for cells to attach to so that they can start to proliferate, beef up, and then to um, actually develop into muscle tissue. Or in this case, chicken up. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. There you go. <laughs> and so our product is, serves as that extracellular matrix and has a couple different functions. So first, the microcarriers, they're very teeny tiny. These are for use in a bioreactor and cells will adhere to those microcarriers and create lots and lots of cells. So cells will stick to these. They really like these microcarriers and they'll make more cells. And then let's say I'm really oversimplifying this process, but I guess to make the conversation accessible to everyone. Make it accessible to into a dummy like me. So just you get these cells, they need to adhere to something to grow, right? Because otherwise the otherwise the media, which is a fancy way of saying the feedstock, what the ingredients and nutrients that they're going to eat can't get through to them all, right? You're going to have necrosis in the middle. And so you got to actually get all of these cells happy. And if they're going to grow into a three-dimensional structure, you need something in there, right? Exactly. And so what you'll get with the microcarriers, for example, is probably not yet. You won't get that 3D structure. These are something they're made for to function with the fluid dynamics of a bioreactor, but you'll get lots and lots of cell mass. And what's interesting with that is all of our products are animal component free and they're all edible. So they're all made with plant-based proteins and food safe ingredients. So that can actually become part of the final product. Now, this is really interesting for early stage cultivated meat companies. I should, probably shouldn't even say early stage for cultivated meat companies that are doing things like sausages, mimicking processed meats, because there's no need to create a whole cut of meat and then grind it down into something else to make it a sausage, right? You can just 
have that kind of cell mass and that biomass with our microcarriers included, and they can become a part of that final customer-facing product. The scaffolds are a little more complex. So we use different technologies to make our scaffolds, but our core technology is electrospinning. And so electrospinning is going to make these really teeny tiny fibers that cells will adhere to. And then once they adhere to those scaffolds, they will, the alignment of the fibers and the size, some of the different parameters and things that we can change on these scaffolds, which are like a sheet, will start to signal protein expression, gene impression, ob- expression, obviously alongside growth medias and other factors in the process. But that's actually going to allow for the maturation and differentiation of those cells so that you'll get a whole cut of muscle tissue. That's also for proliferating cells, but they have two different functions and you can use one or the other, or you could use both in tandem. But you know, in our industry, a lot of people have experience using microcarriers and scaffolds. These aren't new technologies. These have been around for decades and been in life sciences and regenerative medicine, tissue engineering, et cetera. But a lot of people were struggling on how to use a product that was made with food safe ingredients or also just what is this going to look like in food, right? Is this going to look like, is this going to show up in my final meat product? Is it going to change the texture? Is it going to change the bite? What does this actually look like? And because we're making a cell culture food ingredient, it doesn't stop at that cell culture process. A lot of our customers were kind of struggling to understand like, what's the end use of this particular thing beyond this cell culture process. So that's when we decided, hey, we should make this chicken nugget and show people how it works. We were a little nervous at first because we didn't want people to think that we were going to start making cultivated meat. That is not our intention. We, Our intention is to stay in enabling technology and manufacture this technology that can actually help cultivated meat companies achieve a better product and at scale. But we, we, we've been using this kind of on a case-by-case basis. And then finally this year, we decided to let it out to the world. But the chicken nugget was really interesting. We have a university partner that we source some chicken cells from, and then we grew those in our wet lab. So we have both our engineering lab and we have a, our wet lab where we do all of our testing on our own products. Plus we do some contract research uh, services for other companies, cultivated meat companies. So we grew the cells and we made a hybrid chicken nugget and it turned out really well. We did the first tasting internally. Everybody signed a waiver. It was great. And so actually we're planning another tasting here over the next couple months that we're already preparing for. Very cool, Taryn. Very cool. So when you say it's a hybrid nugget, what you mean is that it's not entirely comprised of animal cells, right? So it's a chicken nugget. What percentage of that nugget is chicken versus whatever else you're putting in there? Mm-hmm. Yep. For these nuggets, it was, we didn't make many and we don't have capa- a capability to make a large amount of cells in our wet lab today. And so I think our nugget, we only made a few nuggets and they were like 20% cells and the rest was plant-based protein. Interesting. Okay. Correct me when I get this wrong, but essentially there are a lot of companies out there that want to be the brand, right? They want to be the impossible foods or the beyond meat of cultivated meat, right? So companies like Upside Foods, they want to, or Eat Just, they want to sell the product. You are not seeking to create a brand. You're seeking to create a process that helps those brands make better products. So instead of rushing for gold, you're essentially selling the gold rushers their their shovels and their jeans and their pickaxes. Is that an accurate assessment of what Matrix FT is doing? 
That's exactly what it is. And literally the enabling technologies are referred to as the picks and shovels. So the thing that actually allows the gold rush to happen. (laughs) Cool. Yes. I didn't think I was inventing the analogy, but yes, I appreciate that. (laughs) Cool. So why are you doing this? You're now the CEO. So the, the founder and CEO, Eric, has left the company and you now are in his shoes at the helm. Why you? What led to you being the one who's going to run this company and sell all those picks, the pickaxes and shovels to the companies rushing for gold? I think there's a lot of personal story involved in this. And then also just a series of life events that led me to Matrix. But the first one is personally, food has always been really important to me. And so like long time vegetarian, vegan for many years, I worked in development. Why? Spoke a little bit. What led you to become a vegetarian or a vegan turn? When I was younger, I grew up on a farm and we always had cattle on our farm. And I remember when one day we were sitting at the table and I was with my sisters. I'm the youngest of five. Of course, my uncles, my dad are at the table. And we had just set off, sent off like our three pet steers that were our family, that they had names. And I was maybe like, I don't know, 13 years old. And we're eating burgers at the table. And my uncle and my brother, of course, high school boys start teasing us, start making jokes. I don't even remember what the animal's name was, but they were like, oh, this, yeah, this tastes delicious. I don't know. I can't remember what the steer's name was. But it all of a sudden hit me. Clearly, I knew where meat came from. Clearly, I knew the reason why we had those animals. But literally, it hit me that I was like, I can't believe that I'm eating one of my pets and my sisters as well. We were furious with our parents. I'm sure there was a some storming around like young teenage girls were leaving. How could you do this to us? We're running away, blah, blah, blah. But I, at that point, both of my sisters were also like, we're going to be vegetarian. My other sister's vegetarian. I have a sister who is like lifelong hardcore vegan. There was a period I, so I moved overseas when I was a teenager and I lived in Europe. I lived in Spain and I saw a very different food system than what I was used to seeing in the United States. And when I was there, I did eat some meat. I do remember like having it and I felt like, Hey, this is a little bit different, but why at that point in life, that wasn't my top priority exploring the food system. (laughs) But I remember when I went to college and I moved back to the United States, I really felt like that was one of the things that shocked me about the States was food and access to food and what food even looks like and how it's packaged and it tastes. And so made that transition again, was vegan for quite some time. And then long story short, ended up living in Colombia. And when I was in Colombia, I'm still vegetarian, but I was working in development and was was traveling a lot to rural areas. And I could only survive off so many packs of peanuts for weeks at a time started. So I had a vegetarian diet just to make it through. But yeah, when I'm home, like in my house, we eat completely vegan. And I would say probably the vegetarian part is more of a social thing. Yeah, interesting. For folks for whom it's not obvious, referring to Columbia, the country, not Columbia, Maryland, where I grew up near there. But while I grew up in near Columbia, Maryland, I remember back in like 1994, my parents sent me one summer for six weeks to Costa Rica to do this. It's like a community service project where you basically built playgrounds and reforested areas that have been deforested and stuff like that. And I was vegan then and and still am now, but I was a relatively new vegan back in 94. And when I went to Costa Rica, I remember it was not the easiest thing. It was a lot of frijoles y arroz. And I remember thinking like that if I lived there, it would have been more difficult. I mean, it was only six weeks. It was fine. And I was actually living with a family 
family like in their home and the mother there was very interested in it like she was like oh muy saludable <laughs> just like you know very healthy <laughs> but for them like meat wasn't a daily experience anyway maybe today it would be all these years later yeah. but back then it wasn't a daily experience anyway but okay so uh, that's interesting you have an animal welfare motivation partly for the reason that you wanted to become vegetarian and then vegan and uh, i interrupted you taryn you had mentioned as part of the reason how you became the ceo of matrix ft that it was your interest in plant-based eating and so on but obviously there's a lot of vegans in ohio so that's not the reason why you yeah. became into this situation so what happened <laughs> Yeah. So I think that's just one piece of it. This has always been something that's really motivated me and that I've been very interested in. And uh, so when I clearly I ended up moving to Columbia, so I ended up going to Columbia in 2013. And then from there, I was awarded a Fulbright Research Scholarship. And so I was a Fulbright Research Scholar. Not too shabby. Congratulations. Thanks. Thank you. And so, yeah, I was in Columbia and I was working at the National University in Medellin as a Fulbright Research Scholar. Um, And while I was there, I ended up finishing my time there, teaching at the university for a while. I opened a nonprofit and I'm covering like eight years now very quickly. But then through the nonprofit, I ended up opening up a company. And what the company did was basically set up projects, do consulting. And we worked with a lot of different types of clients from like big companies, to small nonprofits, government, some VCs, basically saying, look, this is how we manage social, environmental and financial value. We don't value the right things in society because the things that we value have monetary value on them. And so that immediately is like this unit of measurement that we all share. But because of that, we're destroying a lot of really important value that's environmental, that's social. And we need that because that actually creates well-being for us. And so this has been the way that I approach business that I approach the way I think about things is how, where are we balancing value? What's this give and take with every single decision that we make? Eric, our former CEO, I had actually met Eric briefly in Colombia through a company that he had before Matrix. And he, I remember him saying, look, you're in this kind of social and environmental space. I need to talk to you. I have this company that we're thinking about opening. And I think this is maybe in like 2018 to the early 2019. And this is what it is. So we started talking about alternative proteins and the space that I followed very closely that I'm, that I think has the, there's a huge opportunity for impact here. And so we were just talking back and forth. And I mean, just listening to him and how inspired he was about the impact that alternative proteins could make and just hearing someone who came from background in military talk about this and how he inspired he was by it. For me, that was that was huge. So I don't we talked about it a couple times, but I started following the cultivated meat space a lot, getting getting really familiar with the space the with the alternative protein space. Clearly very different in the United States than it is in Colombia. But I think we had talked a couple times afterwards and then I spoke to someone who is now on our board of directors from Unovis. And then from there, there was a position open and we had talked about it a couple times. And Eric said to me, Hey, I think you're the person to, to help me lead this. I think this is it. This is the right attitude. This is where we need to go. There's a lot of uncertainty in this space and we need to make sure that we're making the right decisions for the right reasons, especially as an enabling technology. Would you join the team? At that time, I was living in Santa Marta, which is on the Caribbean. It's really beautiful. I had a house in front of the beach. So I was like, no, dude, sorry. I love what you're doing. You got all my support, but (laughs) 
I don't think so. Everything was going great with my company. But then long story short, my son was born and we, I started having a change of heart. And I was like, this is actually something that I really would like to be interested in. But we couldn't leave Colombia because my son was technically a Colombian national before he was a US citizen. And even though we had sent all his paperwork, pandemic, whatever, they said it was going to take several years. But long story short, I spoke to Eric again and he said, hey, would you come and join us? And I said, yes, I would. But there's this problem. I can't leave my son in Colombia. And then literally the next day, his passport showed up in the mail that we weren't expecting for years more. Wow. Uh, so it was like, okay, universe, we get it. I'm going to Matrix. And so I came to Matrix and I started October of 2021. Um, and it's been incredible how the company has grown since then. And of course, I want to say it's incredible how the cultivated meat industry has grown then. But I think also that with the statement that it's crazy how it's grown, but also all the things that have happened in cultivated meat and alternative protein just over the last year, which are difficult and make things difficult, I think, in the short term for people who are working in this space. Um, but regardless, just shows the need for this growing need for alternative proteins. Yeah. So you talk about how the company has grown, Taryn. I think you guys have mm -hmm. 10 full-time employees now, right? You've And you've raised mm -hmm. a, about $4 million or so. So congratulations on that. It's wonderful. But you talk about some of the struggles that the whole space is facing right now. What are those that you see? You alluded to the struggles, but what specifically are the biggest hurdles that you see preventing cultivated meat from becoming mainstream, aside from lack of regulatory authority, of course, but just in terms of anything else that you see that needs to be overcome before we start seeing this. And let me give a little bit of background, actually. I am working right now on an updated version of the book, Queen Meat. It came out in 2018. It's now 2023. And a lot's happened in those five years. And what's striking to me as I'm updating the book for the forthcoming paperback edition is so many timelines that were predicted by people in the space back in 2016, 17, 18 have been missed, right? And I, I say this only because it's sad and painful and true, not because I like it. In fact, I don't like it. But people were thinking these products would be on the market in 2018 or by 2022. And here we are in 2023. And in the US, at least zero grams have been sold. In Singapore, it's a very small amount. And everywhere else in the world, it's zero grams still. So what are the hurdles that you think need to be overcome so that five years from now, when you and I are sitting here, cultivated meat will actually be on the menu? So I, I think that there are probably two big things to this that if you can get these two things, the rest will follow. The first one is the regulatory piece. And just like you said, there have been so many really important target dates that have been missed. And early 2022, we were preparing, our customers were preparing to literally have cultivated meat products on the market by the end of 2022. And I even remember having a conversation with... Um, and there was a group who were like really involved in regulatory issues and really close to what was happening with cultivated meat in the FDA. And they said, yeah, you might even be eating cultivated turkey by November 2022. So, of course, we're all just working like crazy. We're like, yes, this is happening. We need to be ready for this. And then I think it was in July of 2022 that there was a statement published by the FDA saying that this was now a long-term priority. I can't even tell you the chaos in our lab that day because... What does that mean? 
thing. It was just very confusing for us. Like, what do you mean it's a long-term priority? Does this mean one year? Does this mean three months? Does this mean 10 years? And so I think we, we very quickly got some clarity on what that means. And somebody did respond to us from the FDA and said, keep going. Do not stop. Do not lose momentum. And they do have an incredible understanding of the space. And I think are moving relatively quickly. If you consider how long it often takes novel foods to be pushed through the FTA, FDA. But that being said, that was really chaotic for us, especially as a B2B company, as an enabling technology for cultivated meat companies. And that regulatory piece, we still don't have clarity on that particularly. And I think that probably is holding back a lot of things in the industry, just understanding when are we going to have a market, right? Because there's the when, and we know the market size and how much, but it's how long can we hold on, especially when this is a almost completely funded, venture capital funded industry. Right. But I mean, there certainly has to be regulatory authority in order to get things going. But if the FDA and USDA today came and said, okay, we're approving this, all of you all can sell. They didn't just do one company at a time. They said the entire industry can sell. It wouldn't still be on big box grocery store shelves. It wouldn't be on fast food menus, like in the way that you can go to Burger King and get an Impossible Whopper. You shouldn't expect to be getting cultivated burger because the infrastructure to actually produce large amounts of this doesn't yet exist. Like the largest plant of its kind is Upside Foods, and it's not in production yet. But still, even once it is, they're not going to be producing enough to be able to put this on thousands of menus. Rather, it's the type of thing where it's really like a demonstration pilot scale plant. So even if there is regulatory authority, Taryn, what do you think needs to be done? Like what actually needs to be done to create a new industry to mass produce animal cells to the point where it could really make a dent in the number of animals who are raised for food? I mean, even plant-based meat today, despite being on essentially every grocery store carries it now, it's still only about 1% of the total volume of the meat industry, which is very small. It's not even a rounding error in the meat industry. So what will it take for cultivated meat, let's say, to get to 1% of the total meat volume, which would be around a billion or so pounds? I left on the venture capital funded point <laughs> on purpose, because I think that piece is really important as that's really been driving the cultivated meat industry. And you know what? Great job, venture capitalists. Thank you. I think that's going to be very impactful in the future. But related to the regulatory piece, government needs to step up. And I really hope that the US government will start investing a lot more into research, into science, into infrastructure around cultivated meat. This is a huge priority for food security internationally. And I think it's really important that we have non-venture capital cash in the cultivated meat industry that's really promoting science and technology and allowing for a lot more innovation. And look, innovation requires a lot of forgiveness because there's a lot of mistakes. And sometimes um, private capital does not allow for that. But grant capital and other types of money can actually really drive innovation. And I still feel like that's lacking in this space. It's been really insignificant amounts that have been channeled through universities. And that's great. But you know, those tend to stay within those kind of university bubbles. So I would like to see a lot more money from different actors outside of venture capital space and cultivated meat industry. Yeah, um, I'm totally with you, Taryn. Like people, including myself, are very excited to see government funding for this industry starting to trickle in. And people talk about the Davis got like three and a half million dollar grant and Tufts got a $10 million grant. And these sound like big numbers until you start looking at how much the meat industry gets. And like just not that long ago, the Biden administration announced a billion dollars just to expand the nation's slaughter capacity, just so we can mm-hmm 
mm-hmm. slaughter more animals, $1 billion. And that's just one of numerous federal assistance programs for the meat industry. And so when I think about like, do you remember the the Solyndra scandal under like the Green New Deal, like Solyndra was a solar company and they got like a $500 million loan and it, they went bankrupt basically. And it became this like rallying cry for people who were against renewable energy or for government assistance for renewable energy. And they were like, oh, Solyndra, they wasted all this money. And I sit there and think, how did... You know, if Solyndra got $500 million, why can't the cultivated meat companies? Why aren't we getting $500 million in government-backed loans? That would be great. So anyway, I, the kind of money that's going into renewable energy, I think, is the kind of money that needs to go into the clean meat space. And unfortunately, we've seen nothing like that. We've seen like essentially, again, like a rounding error in terms of federal largesse or even state largesse going to support this, despite the enormity of good that it could do for climate and for other environmental aims that the government has. So yeah, I think we need like a real Manhattan project here to help wean humanity off of animals as a food source in the way that we need to wean ourselves off of fossil fuels as an energy source as well. Mm, I agree. So whenever you're ready to start tackling that one, just let me know because I share the same feelings. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Thank you. Yeah. So I, I do want to just chat briefly then, Taryn, about specifically what Matrix FT is doing, because it's one thing you know, for people to understand that you need microcarriers, that you need a scaffolding in order to grow animal cells to make something like a three-dimensional meat product that could then be used to, let's say, make a chicken nugget. But what is it? Like you talk about electro spinning, which, you know, sounds like something that might be like a medieval torture or something, maybe not medieval, but might be like some like torture that you do to like prisoners to get them to confess to horrible crimes, electro spinning. But you know, what's electro spinning? And what are these carriers made of? You said they're food safe, you said they're edible, like, what are they that you're actually making? That's really funny. I was about to invite you to the lab afterwards. If we have this chicken nugget tasting, you should come. But now I'm like, oh, maybe he doesn't want to come. Electro spinning does sound really ominous. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I actually, am, I, I don't know if this is true, but I feel like it's probably true that there is no human who has eaten a greater variety of cultivated meats than I have, I think. So I've eaten cultivated fish, multiple species, chicken, turkey, beef, chorizo, foie gras. Like so many of the companies have been gracious in in offering me tastings because of this book, Queen Meat, that I have like a personal identity of wanting to try all the products. So I would very (laughs) much happily come and witness some electro spinning and get my Ohio chicken nugget. But what is it? What are you spinning here? Taryn, that becomes a scaffold. Um, Okay. So I had briefly mentioned that all of our products are made with plant-based protein. So we use very commonly used plant-based proteins in food space. So think corn protein, which is zane, soy, pea, alginates. We're experimenting with some other types of plant-based proteins. And those are the base of the product. Okay. And for those who aren't initiated, alginate is basically a seaweed extract? Is that what you're getting it from? Correct. Got it. So you're using things like soy protein or pea protein plus seaweed extracts. Okay. Let's hear the rest. Mm -hmm. 
Yep. So these are all really common plant-based proteins. I guess, what's the process look like? Just breaking this down. This is, we, these all come as powders. So we make a solution with these plant-based proteins. Those solutions are then put into a syringe. That syringe may have one needle, may have multiple needles, and then that will be connected to, in this, to this machine that has an electrical charge. And then it shoots out these fibers um, through this electrical charge, and then it's collected on a spinning drum. So those fibers will dry in the air, they're collected on a drum, and then we take off these sheets of scaffolds. And then if they're, we also use electro spraying with a similar technology, which is also with an electric charge, but it creates like little like grains of sand almost. So really teeny tiny, um, balls. And those are microcarriers. So we have some electrosprayed microcarriers, and then we have some electrosprayed scaffolds. So those processes are our most commonly used processes. Electrospinning is a really highly scalable technology. There's been a lot of criticism of this specifically because of the use of plant-based proteins, because they're a little bit slower than other types of polymers, for example, that are like plastics or not edible, non-edible products. But I mean, the technology of electrospinning itself is very highly scalable. Think of like, for example, like flame retardant fabrics, like used for fireman's uniforms. Those are electrospun. N95s also electrospun. So this is a really, and clearly those have been scaled up because they're all over like every beach and in every right. corner. And yeah, <laughs> all I, over. I, I, yeah, I agree with you, but we need some better example because when we start talking about mm-hmm. flame retardant clothing. It doesn't sound that, that uh, mouth wetting to me, but <laughs> I, yeah, I think that, I don't know if this is the same type of technology, but I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, that Daring Chicken is also using electrospinning for their soy protein based chicken nuggets. So it's, this is not a cultivated cell product. It's purely plant-based, but yeah. I, I think that there's a company in the Netherlands that has pioneered electro spinning for this particular purpose that they utilize if I if what I've read is correct. But that's cool. So you're basically using electro spinning to create these, let's just say soy alginate combinations that then go into a bioreactor and allow a company like Upside Foods, let's say, to grow their cells more efficiently. Is that accurate? Yes, that is cool. correct. And so we're, I don't want to, I don't want to ruffle any feathers here, but like, can you state who are some of your partners in the industry? Cause you mentioned you have customers. So presumably some of the companies in the space are using your microcarriers or your scaffolds. So who do you work with? I cannot say who they are, okay. um, but you have customers who pay you to buy the products that you're making. Yeah. Yeah, we do. Okay. And so you're not a, you're not a pre-revenue company is my point. So we have, so Matrix has a couple of different revenue streams. One is a product selling, selling, which are microcarriers and scaffolds, but then we also offer contract research services and contract development services. And this kind of came through um, just talking to other cultivated meat companies and our customers and saying, hey, what's the best way for us to get to what is our core business, which is an exclusive manufacturing agreement. So another interesting thing about Matrix products is that not only are they all made with these plant-based proteins and with food safe ingredients, so they're edible, they're also all animal component free. So no gelatins, no animal derived proteins used in any of our products, but they're all customizable. So if you, for example, go to the Good Food Institute's like deep dive website, they have some amazing research. And for example, if you look at their cell lines, their scaffolds or their bioprocess design, they'll all say, look, really, there's no one size fits all for a scaffold or a microcarrier. There has to be some kind of customization that's fit to the type of cell, the process, and also to whatever it is that you want that final 
customer facing food product to be the scaffold or microcarrier carrier will change that if it's part of that product. So we have a base set of products. And then from there, we can customize those base set of products with different proprietary coatings, shape, size, there's quite a lot of interesting things that we can do. I think right now, most of our customers are at a pretty early stage where they're using something pretty basic. So pretty standard microcarrier, pretty standard scaffold, and they'll probably stick to those for like the first generation of cultivated meat products. But we also set up these cultivated or sorry, these contract research services and these contract development services, because a lot of companies were just saying, we have so much to get done in so little time, we don't have the bandwidth, or we're just not sure how to do this. Can you just help us with this? Can you do it for us? And we do have our own wet lab. And so we can. So we do either exchange of different starting materials like growth medias and cell lines, or we just do parallel testing with our customers to make sure that we're optimizing a product for them as quickly as possible. That being said, going back to the microcarriers and scaffolds piece, thinking about who are we working with, another really interesting thing happened in 2022 for us, which is our product is a cell culture food ingredient. So microcarriers and scaffolds and all in their other industries and including in tissue engineering, there are lots of medical devices that are made with scaffolds, similar, the exact same technology that we use, which is electrospinning, but really never at the scale and never with the purpose of being consumed, right? And so consuming it is not just food safe. It has to taste good and it has to have the right texture and it has to really contribute to what that final food product is going to be. So we've always been really focused on, let's not just make a product that's good for cell culture that's all adhered to, and then you grow lots of them or they turn into what they should be. But how does it also make that final product taste good. Because I think we've seen this a lot with plant-based meat where customer where the general public is saying, great, it's fine, the health part, whatever, it's not meat, lower cholesterol, all these great benefits. But it doesn't taste like me. So there's always this idea of that this is a substitute for the other thing and they're comparing it to meat and it doesn't have that like tissue like texture. And I know that is a concern with cultivated meat as well. How are we going to get that right texture? How are we going to add structure? And that's something that our products can also do. So interestingly, we're working with cultivated meat companies, not only on that, hey, let's get yourselves to work with this product and then let's figure out how it works well in your final product. But also, how can it add to that overall kind of unique selling proposition of each product line that you have? And last year, we were contacted a few plant-based companies and they said, look, we're having issues with our plant-based products. We're trying to get our gen, whatever, three, four, product. I'm not sure which generation of plant-based products we're in now. And we're trying to get these products onto the market and we need a more tissue-like texture. We need springiness. We need that kind of like oils and fats release. We want something that's fibrous. And I think you mentioned Daring. They're doing an incredible job. I think they do a great job. I've seen so many interesting plant-based products on the market. So one thing that we do at Matrix is we see a new plant-based product on the market. We snatch it up. We do tastings. We talk about our product, about their product, and how could we contribute to that? How can we improve? And not that anything is wrong with these products, but that if the consumer is thinking I want this to be exactly like meat. How can we actually help turn that plant-based product into something that is more tissue-like? And so also thinking of not just cultivated meat, but the entire alternative protein industry and using our products, A, for cultivated meat companies as cell culture food ingredients, but also for plant-based companies as these advanced texturizers to make sure that they're achieving that, you know, tissue-like, fibrous, stringy texture that's within meat. And of course, this all coming from a person who has not eaten meat for a very long time. But that's where we're headed. 
Right. So that's pretty cool. So you're envisioning being a supplier to both the cultivated and the plant-based sides. So that then raises the question, Taryn, if one of the huge plant-based meat companies, say like Morningstar Farms, right, came to you and they said, okay, Taryn, we've tried your we've tried your ingredients. They make our product more meat-like. We love the texture. We want to put you in our products, which are in the tens of thousands of supermarkets. How quickly could you scale to be able to actually supply a company the size of, let's say, a Morningstar, as opposed to a Daring, which is, of course, much smaller? So that's a really good question. And I think this is the number one thing that we're tackling this year as an enabling technology, and which is a really hard problem to tackle, especially in the context of no one really knows when the cultivated meat industry is going to be regulated. So when do you scale and when you do you prepare to scale? What's the right time to spend that money, right? And I, what I can say is it depends on the product that we have. So we have electrospun products. We have electrospade products. We also use a couple different methods. So we have some extruded and some kind of spins on extrusion. We also do a kind of like cast film product. And so there are a lot of different methods. Some of them are more easily scalable than others. But we're also working with a couple different food industry consultant groups who have experience um, in scaling these technologies to say, okay, look, how do we not just scale this process, this electrospraying or electrospraying process with our, I think are the two largest challenges, but how are we scaling to produce, let's say 90,000 kilos a month, but how do we also make sure that is price accessible as a food ingredient for both cultivated meat and for plant-based? Because that is also a really important piece for us as an enabling technology whose mission is to scale the cultivated meat industry. There's also that price point there. So it's really, we're already thinking about that price piece and how, what exactly is that perfect machine and process that we're going to have to be able to scale to that level. Um, and I will tell you that the easiest thing for me to answer that question would probably be for one of those plant-based companies to call me up and say, hey, Taryn, we want to buy 90,000 kilos a month. So if you know what you want in Morningstar... <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, maybe somebody from Morningstar is listening right now, but for <laughs> other people, Taryn, who are listening right now and they're thinking, hey, you know, what a cool story. I love that this person was so motivated to help animals and now she's running her own company to try to make the animal free protein industry more successful. They want to just be more like you, let's say. Were there anything that was helpful for you in this journey? Any resources that you would recommend, whether books or otherwise, Taryn, that you think, hey, this was really useful for me in my journey. I recommend it to you as well. Sure. I think specifically related to Matrix, there are a few incredible resources out there that are, in terms of the technical side, that are driving the cultivated meat industry, like New Harvest, the Good Food Institute. They have incredible technical resources, but my team has been incredible. I can't tell you how much time I spend. And I, I'm one of those people that wakes up at 4.30 in the morning and is thinking about like, but what about this particular thing and how this happens? So I'll send like very technical questions to my team at 4.30. And for some reason, they respond. I was like, you guys don't feel obligated, right? Don't feel obligated to respond to this. Yeah, they it's do. a it's a controversial issue whether CEOs should be sending these late night emails. I know that in, I forget, there's some Latin American country, I don't remember which one that actually by law prohibits. I'll look at, I'll include this in the show notes at, at businessforgoodpodcast.com so that people don't think I'm just making this up. But there is some Latin American country that I read about that prohibits executives from emailing staff members off hours because of the, the feeling that you have to respond. I, I'm somebody who works seven days a week, but I also, I will tell you, I have been trained to often on weekends just 
queue up emails to colleagues yeah. to send at, at like 8 a.m. Monday morning. Anyway, sorry. So you're you're emailing people at 4.30 a.m. They're responding. They want to make sure that, that they're working. Okay, go on. I, maybe that has something to do with it. But, you know, I think it's also that they're also thinking about these things. And they're so great at responding to these really challenging questions and really digging deep and doing the research behind it. And I learned so much from our technical team. So, I mean, on the technical side, like they are my best teachers and mentors is our team. And of course, we learn a lot from our customers. I think we're very much on the cutting edge of what's happening in this industry. And we get to see so much of what companies are doing. And so we have a very interesting perspective of what's the process, what's the technical part, what's the innovation that all of these companies are driving. And I mean, that may, that's really on the technical side. And I love this industry. And I think it's incredible where it's going. It's just crazy the amount of technology that you see. And it's also very humbling. Like you think you're smart until you go listen to a PhD from the Cultivated Meat Industry show present their latest paper, right? Um. <laughs> you know, it helps, Taryn, I'll tell you, it helps if you just don't think you're smart, which is what I, my strategy is. <laughs> just accept that you're stupid and that you try to surround yourself with people who are a lot smarter. And speaking of stupid, I, I feel stupid because I just Googled which country had banned bosses from emailing staff members. And it turns out it's not a Latin American country, it's Portugal. And so I'll include a link to that. Maybe there was also a Latin American country that did this, but it is in Portugal apparently now illegal to do. But I want to ask you also Taryn, because you're somebody who's done quite a lot of things. Like you started your own company in Colombia, you started your own nonprofit organization. Now you're running a company that was started by somebody else. Surely somebody who has this serial entrepreneurial streak that you have in your personality has thought about other ideas that you hope will be in the world. Presumably you're going to be at Matrix FT for some time. So are there any other ideas for companies that you wish that somebody else would start that could do some good in the world that you want to put it out there to the universe now? The universe got your son his passport. Maybe they'll get whoever is going to hear you say this following recommendation to start the following company. Yes. And I'm one of those people where you go to the party and everybody's talking about what they watched on Netflix or some series. And I'm talking about that idea to solve this problem. This is just what motivates me. This is the thing that I care about. That's why I'm messaging people at 4.30 in the morning, not because <laughs> I'm a crazy boss, but because I genuinely care. I really do. And these are the things I think about. And my, I love work because I love solving these problems. And that is really what has motivated me. And I think ideas to change the world. I don't think we've even scratched the surface of technology for people's well-being, for well-being, for environmental protection, like you name the problem. It's shocking to me that we have Uber and we have like all these like door dashes and rappies and all these really highly technological things like just to get people a pizza quicker, right? But there's still hunger. And why aren't we harnessing any of that to solve these issues? Because it's not really an issue of that. We don't have the technology and we don't have the capital. It's just really the distribution of those ideas. And then who is the benefit going to? So I think that it would be great to see a lot of these ideas channeled to more of the these really pressing problems that we have. I think technology is a really important piece um, there to make sure that we're getting services to people who really need it until these like very tough issues that we're facing today that are really just getting worse. I hope that somebody can figure out how to make money doing what you're just saying. It's it's easy to see how you can make money by getting somebody a pizza faster. So let's see if somebody can make money taking these suggestions that you have just made to help people live better lives. We'll see. But 
Taryn, it's really a pleasure to talk with you. Congratulations again on the first ever Ohio cultivated chicken nugget. I hope to be there, see some electro spinning, eat some soy alginate, and enjoy a nice cultivated chicken nugget with you sometime. But in the meantime, please know I'll be rooting for your success. And I hope that if we connect again, it will be in person and we can dine on some animal-free protein together. Likewise. And I will show you our electrospinning torture chamber. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. I promise I won't take photos and expose the horrible things that you all were doing. (laughs) All right, Taryn. Thank you again. It was great to talk to you, Paul. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you found it useful. And if you did, please let the world know. Leave the show a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app and share the episode with your friends. Who knows? Maybe you'll inspire one of them to be in the business of doing good themselves.